If you're new, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point a Bible to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13 is where we find ourselves working our way through the Gospel of Luke together. If you don't have a Bible with you in church today, there is a black one in the pew in front of you. Grab that one and you'll find Luke chapter 13, our passage today on page 873 of the church Bible. We'll be reading from verse 22 down to verse 30. So as you find your way there, here at Pickle Baptist Church, we believe that there is one God who eternally exists in three equally divine persons as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and that God the Father has appointed a day in which He will judge humanity in righteousness by the Son, Jesus Christ, to whom He's given all authority to judge. And that all will appear before the Lord to give an account of their thoughts and their deeds and their actions and to receive according to what they have done, whether it is good or bad. And that God's purpose in His judgment is to display the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of His elect. And it is to show the glory of His justice in the damnation of the lost. And some of this is explained in the very passage we'll be considering this morning. And so if you would, if you're ready, we will go ahead and start reading verse 22 down to 30. And then I'll pray asking for the Lord's help on our time together. And we'll work through this verse by verse. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Father, we humble ourselves and bow down before you now, asking that you would give us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand these words of our Savior. Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. We give you praise that you have set your love upon us and redeemed us and give us your Holy Spirit. Please now help us as we look at your word. Teach us. Prepare the soil of our heart that would receive the wheat, the seed of your word. 
protect us from the weeds and from those things which would hinder the fruitfulness of your word in our lives today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. There was one door in Noah's ark. God spoke to Noah and told him that he, because of the wickedness of men, was going to put an end to all flesh on the earth. That he would judge the earth with a great flood. And that Noah was to build an ark, a boat, that would be lifted above the waters of God's judgment. And in his plans, God told Noah to put one door in the ark. Just one. And that one door was a mercy. The story of Noah's ark has often confused me. Not because the story itself is difficult to understand. It's a rather easy story to understand. What has confused me about Noah's ark is often the way that we tell the story of Noah's ark. I grew up in church, as many of you know, and I can't get out of my head these images, these colorful cartoon drawings of a big boat on the water with a bunch of safari animals sticking their heads out of the window of the boat, smiling. And there's usually a sun and a rainbow in the background. Some people even decorate their babies' rooms in Noah's Ark imagery, which the more I think about it is actually a really good idea if you know what Noah's Ark was about. The story of Noah's Ark is about God's glory in the salvation of His people through judgment. Eight people were closed up in the ark, and every other living person on earth dies in that story. Sunshine and rainbows do feature in the story, but they come at the end. After the waters which have drowned all flesh have receded. And when Noah and his family walk out on dry ground into the new creation, God's sign of a rainbow appears. So now if you, if you want to decorate your baby's room in Noah's Ark themes, then go ahead, live your dream. But point them babies to the door on the ark. The one door through which God saved his people. Judgment. Today we talk about another door, but it's not really a different door. It's the door that Noah's door was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ is that door. You see, another flood is coming, but not of water. And another ark has been prepared, but not a boat. Jesus Christ is the door on the ark and the ark itself. He is the ark upon which the flood of God's judgment fell. And those who've entered the door, those who are closed up into him, as it were, were lifted above the waters of God's judgment and spared. One day, as Noah and his family did, they will walk out on the dry ground of a new creation. 
Here's what we're going to learn this morning from Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 30. The time to get right with God is limited, and the doorway is narrow. So know and be known by Jesus Christ. The time to get right with God is limited, and the doorway to get in is narrow. So know and be known by Jesus Christ. Four points to draw out of this passage this morning. And the first point is the most fundamental of them all. And it is this. There is a door. And it is a mercy. There is a door. And it is a mercy. Let's go back to verse 22 and read down to the first part of 24. Luke 13, 22. Jesus went on his way throughout towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. There is a door, and that is a mercy. Verse 22 is more than a simple geographical note on Jesus location in Luke 13. Verse 22 is orientation. It is uh, calibration. It is a mission statement. The gospel writer Luke reminds us for the first time since way back in chapter 9 that Jesus Christ has set his face toward Jerusalem. And We're told here that Jesus is making his way, teaching in towns and villages, journeying toward Jerusalem. He is journeying, and the word is more than just a meandering. It's a pursuit. So your hippie friends who think that life is about the journey, not the destination, that's not true in Jesus' case here. Jesus is determined. He is about this destination, and Jerusalem is the destination. Now, why Jerusalem of all the towns in Israel? Well, Jerusalem is the city in which the Lord would do what his father sent him to do. In Jerusalem, God the Son would absorb the wrath of God for sin to bring his people to God and destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he is the ark that will save his people from the flood of God's judgment. On the cross, God will rain down his judgment upon all flesh, and Christ will endure the suffering for all. He will die for all. He will save all who turn to him. That's why he came. And on the way, someone asks, Lord, will... Will everyone who will be saved, well, is it just going to be a few of us? Is it just like me and like my friends? Is it going to be just a few? No, we're, not, we're not told what's behind this man's question, this woman's question. It just says person. We, we don't know this, the, what's behind this person's question. Some commentators read into this thinking that it's, it's probably an ethnic thing, a self-congratulatory thing. Like uh, in, 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 in the first century, Jews believed that when Messiah came, all the Jews would be saved and All the non-Jews, the Gentiles, would be put to shame. But who really knows the reason behind this question? We just know Jesus' answer. And Jesus' answer is classic Jesus. 
He refused to give the answer that this person is looking for, but instead gives the answer this person needed. His answer calls into question this kind of question. And his answer is a sort of like, well, what business is that of yours? Instead of asking whether the number of saved will be few, you should be asking whether you will be in that number. And so he says to the crowd in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. And here's the first point that we'll draw out of this passage. There is a judgment coming, and there is a door, and that is a mercy. That, you see, God was under no obligation outside of himself to tell Noah to build an ark. There was nothing outside of God that required him to put a door in the ark. The door was a mercy. And God's salvation of his elect through judgment is an act of magnificent grace. He put a door in the ark to put an arrow toward the cross through which he would finally and fully preserve his people from his judgment through an act of stunning grace. So verse 24 tells us there's a door, and that's a mercy. That's not all that verse 24 tells us. There's more that verse 24 tells us. So, so the second point we will draw out of verse 24 this morning is this, that that door is open, but it is narrow. That door is open, but it is narrow. So verse 24, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. So let's tease that out for just a, a minute. Three things I would like you to take note of about Jesus' statement in the first part of verse 24. The first is that this door is open. Now in a minute, we're going to see that one day this door is going to be closed. And we've already learned from Luke chapter 13 that God's mercy is unlimited. And our time is not. That God's mercy is unlimited. But our time to repent is not. And so while this door is open, we must strive to enter the door. And that is the second thing I would like you to note about verse 24. Jesus says, strive to enter. So that word strive, it's kind of a strong word. It means to fight, exert oneself, to labor fervently. It means to devote serious effort towards something. This word appears in the original language, it appears in the present imperative, which means that it's calling for us to continually work, to make it a habitual practice to fight these lifelong warfares, which include lots of different battles. 
It's actually the same word that Paul uses in 1 Peter 6 when he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Strive. Now let's slow down. Time out for a second. Reformation colored bells should be ringing in your ears right now. Strive, fight, work to enter. Like some of you are about to jump up and start spouting off every Latin phrase you know. What about sola gratia? Sola fide? All the other solas that I don't really know what they mean. I mean, it seems like Jesus is saying that you have to work really hard in order to get into heaven. Hasn't Jesus read Luther or Calvin? What is he teaching us here? Is Jesus teaching that you'll be saved if you work hard enough? No. What Jesus is saying is that those who are saved, those who do enter, are those who will strive, who will fight, who will work. It's the Apostle James saying, I will show you my faith by my work. You're not saved by striving, but those who are saved will strive. You follow? If you're still working that out, maybe the third thing about verse 24 may help you. Third thing to note, I think explains the second thing that we noted. And the third thing to note is that this door, which is open, which you must strive to enter, is narrow. The door is narrow. It's open, but it is narrow. And the reason that we must strive to enter it, must fight to enter it, is because it is narrow. So we must strive to enter the narrow door. Okay, so we're not done with understanding verse 24. We need to ask, as good Bible students, what in the world does Jesus mean by the narrow door? And what, do we, what are we striving against, actually? Against what am I supposed to be fighting in order to enter this narrow door? Well, we may be helped a little by finding other places that this word is used. And in John chapter 18, Jesus uses this same word when he stands before Pilate. He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. There's our word. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So whatever it is that we're fighting against, we're striving against, it's not flesh and blood. It's not people. Because if we were to understand that the narrow door is the entrance into the kingdom of God, there's not a person on this earth, alive or dead, that can keep you from the kingdom of God. Well, they may throw you in jail. They may cut out your tongue. They may even kill you. But they cannot keep you from entering the narrow door. So what can The answer is unbelief. 
unbelief. And I'm making that case for unbelief because of what comes later in this passage, verse 25 and verse 26, tell us that those who are inside the door are those who are known and who know the master of the house. What keeps a person from not knowing God and not being known by God? Well, it is unbelief. So the thing that we must strive against, must fight against, must war against all of our days is unbelief. Our sin of unbelief is our greatest threat. Unbelief is always the issue. Do we actually believe that God is who he says he is? Do we actually believe that God will do what he says he will do? Do we actually believe that it is by Christ alone that we are made right with God? Do we truly believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Because when we look to someone or something other than God to do for us What only God can do for us is a sin of unbelief. And it is the root of a hundred other sins. If I don't believe that Christ alone is the one who saves, then I will look to something else to save me. I'll try to fit through that narrow door with one hand on Jesus and another hand on something else. And that other thing won't fit through the door because it's too narrow. When I don't actually believe that Christ is enough, put one hand on Him and one hand on my good works, My good theology, my good decision-making, my walking down an aisle, my being a good person, then my striving to enter the narrow door is for naught. I can't get in. So what Jesus means by striving to enter the narrow door is that I must take hold of Christ and I must fight every craving in my body to take hold of anything else. We all say that we believe that Christ alone saves. And I think it's good practice, dear Christian, to exegete your heart once in a while and ask, But do I actually live by that? Do I actually live my life like Christ alone saves? Because if Christ alone saves, then that means I don't. That excludes me. It excludes anything in me. And that there's nothing in me that commends me to my God. So that means that when God looks at my life and he sees all, he is never at one point saying, well, if you only had this, 
than, than you did. Or he's looking at your life and saying, because you have that, you're it. If there's nothing in me to commend myself to God, then I have no right to take claim on anything in my life. That means my God can ask anything of me and he can spend my life in any way he pleases. And I have no right to object to anything he asks of me because nothing in me belongs to me, that my life was bought with a price and that I am not my own and that he has my life, has purchased my life and can spend my life any way it pleases him. And so therefore, I'm left with one option, which is to trust him. That he's good. That he will do good. That means that the true danger in my life is my craving to take hold of something other than Christ to commend me to my God, to justify me and make me right before him. Why is this craving so strong? We're Protestants. We've been doing this for 500 years. Why haven't we figured it out yet? Because if there's something in me that commends me to my God, then I have some semblance of control. And see, then I get to tell him this far and no more. You can ask this of me, not this, that's mine. And oh, how we want some semblance of control. And oh, how we will beat upon the pages of Scripture to find it. And it will not relinquish a single thing. Listen. To the way the Apostle Paul expresses a concern to the church at Corinth. I just want, you don't have to turn here. I just want you to listen. Just imagine hearing this. As, if you're the Corinthian church, imagine hearing this from the Apostle. Speaking of the narrow door. Paul writes, I, I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's concern for the Corinthian church is that they were listening to the enemy. Just like the serpent did to Eve. God's holding out on you. Did he really give you access to all the trees? What about this one? That's got to be the best one. You go eat fruit from that tree, you're just going to be full. You eat fruit from this tree, and you will know good and evil. You'll be like God. And 
And Eve was drawn away from pure and simple devotion to her Savior. It's unbelief. It's not believing that God is good and will do good. And that in the way he spends your life, he will do so for your good. And it's pride. It swells us up. It gives us an overestimation of ourselves and our own importance. Because if salvation is by Christ and Christ alone, and it doesn't include me, that makes me small. But here's the thing about small things. They fit through the door. Christian, anything that distracts and leads away from this pure and simple devotion to Christ is the thing that you need to fight against. It's the thing that will keep you from entering the narrow door. Until Christ is all is more than just this church's vision statement. It is the banner under which we march. It is, it is how we push back every evil influence in our day. Anything that would jostle for place on the throne of our heart. Anything that we would look to to justify ourselves. And so this is the thing, Christian. This is the thing, PBC, that we must fight against war against all of our days. Strive to enter the narrow door. Because if you've got one hand on Christ and one hand on something else, you're not going to fit. It's Christ. Christ alone. So there is a door. And that door is open. That door is narrow. Third point. The open door will close. The third point we see in this passage is that the open door will close. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, the second half, down to verse 28. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. You'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. <laughs> you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. If you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here today. You need to know the door is open. Right now, the door to the ark is open. When you confess your sins to Jesus Christ and lay yourself before him and ask for his mercy, the Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of the filth of your sins. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has secured salvation for all who turn to him. The door is open. Come. But friend, you must take this call seriously because one day that door won't be open. One day the master of the house will get up and close the door. And that will either happen when your life ends or that, that will happen when Jesus returns. 
Noah's Ark had one door, and it was open for a time. And then God closed it, and it started to rain. The mercy of God is unlimited. Time to repent is not. Before you leave this place, introduce yourself to someone. and Tell them that you would like to receive mercy from Jesus Christ. They'll pray with you. They'll begin meeting with you. And telling you more about following Him. And being closed up into Him. Avoiding the judgment of God for your sin. I'll be standing by those double doors on your way out. Please come and talk to me. I'd love to meet you. This is a sobering reality. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling the people of His day that many who think that they are cool with God are not. They think they're in. They're not. We ate and drank, they say. We were in your presence. You taught in our streets. You came to our schools. You preached in our churches. I thought we were cool. But the master says, you're not in the house. Never entered the door. And he says, I don't even know where you're from. I don't know who you are. They'd heard Jesus' teaching. But they hadn't turned to him in faith. They'd had dinner with Messiah, but they did not delight in Messiah. Maybe they considered Jesus interesting. Like some kind of magician that could do miracles. Perhaps they even admired him. But they did not find him precious, and they did not give him their worship. And my friends, tragically, this is the case for millions today. It should sober everyone in this room to think that there are people in our churches who believe themselves to be right with God, who do not know him and are not known by him. They have never taken his call to repent seriously. They turn up in church. They listen to sermons. They might even crack open their Bible once in a while. They believe they're good with God because they believe in God. But you know it is a completely different thing to believe in God than it is to be good with God. Believing in God isn't going to do you any good. The demons believe. You're just about as good with God as a demon. Consider the plight of those who are outside the door. Verse 28. Weeping. Gnashing teeth. It's a powerful image that Jesus employs to describe the fate of those who reject him. Weeping in their regret weeping in their sorrow, gnashing in their teeth. As they have to endure the pain of knowing that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets who pointed to Jesus are with Jesus and they're cut out. Sober. So I'm going to make one more plea to you, sinner. Weep over your sin today. 
before you weep over your sin when it's too late. And that brings us to our final point in this heavy passage. The door is open to any and to all who will come. The door is open to any and to all who will come. Let's read verse 29 and 30 as we close. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last and will be first. Some are first who will be last. So here's Jesus' answer to the question way back in verse 23. He doesn't say the number. He does say that they come from all over. East and west, north and south. They're like the birds who nest in the branches from the parable that Pastor Steve so eloquently preached last Lord's Day. They'll come from all over. And they'll enter the narrow door. And they'll be known by him. And they'll know him. They'll recline at table in the kingdom of God. Every tribe and language and people and nation. Their striving will cease. Their battle against sin and temptation will be over. Christ has won the victory. And all that is left in the kingdom of their heavenly father is resting and rejoicing and feasting and fun. The souls of the redeemed will be satisfied in their every longing in the infinite riches of their Savior. And because His pleasures are inexhaustible and their pleasure centers are unbounded by sin, their feasting only gets better and better and better and better. You see, from this passage, we learn a couple of things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both unapologetically exclusive and unapologetically inclusive at the same time. There was one door in the ark, just one. There is one way to heaven, just one. Now, I know I'm not going to make any friends in the world by saying this, but these aren't my words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel is unapologetically exclusive. There is one way. Now, Jesus doesn't mean there's only one way to get to God. Lots of ways to get to God. The atheist makes his way to God, and he's not even trying. It's just that those who get to God without Christ don't like what they find when they do. Jesus means that he is the only way to be right with God when you get to God. You see, we're all going to get to God one day or another. But sadly, some of us will get there without Christ. That will be tragic when they do. Jesus is saying there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be right with God. And that is through Jesus Christ. I am the way. You don't need to find your way to heaven. The way to heaven has already been made for you. By the one who came from heaven. And Jesus is that way. And then Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. So I'm happy to announce to you today, you don't have to live your truth. You don't have one. 
You can live God's truth or you can live a lie. Those are your two options. You don't have to be burdened with living your truth. One truth, Jesus Christ, radically exclusive. There's also one life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Again, there's only one way to live. Jesus Christ is the life. So the gospel is unapologetically exclusive and the gospel is unapologetically inclusive. So we read in this passage that all kinds of people come from all kinds of places to recline at table with their heavenly father in his kingdom. This door is open to any who will come. And that makes the gospel radically inclusive. So you don't have to be of a certain ethnicity. You don't have to have achieved some level of personal holiness. You don't have to have achieved some level of spiritual enlightenment. You don't have to have unlocked any secrets. You don't have to be, have summited some moral mountain. You simply need to come and take hold of Jesus Christ by faith. And that makes the gospel radically inclusive. Some of us think that our lives are like the scales of justice. So at the end of my life, if the good things that I have done outweigh the bad things that I've done, then I'm good. But if the bad things that I have done have outweighed the good things that I've done, then I'm not good. That's not how it works at all. The Bible teaches that all the bad things that you've done have far outweighed any of the good things that you've done. And that we're way worse than we could have possibly imagined. And the door is barred to all who sin against God because the gospel is exclusive. But the Bible also teaches that we are far more loved than we could ever dream that God sent his own son who had no bad deeds of his own and only had an infinite number of good deeds that he accomplished. And that on the cross, all of our bad deeds went on his scale, and they were accounted to him as if he had committed them. So he suffered, and he died, and he absorbed the judgment of hell in our place. And on the cross, all of his good deeds get put on our scale. They're accounted to us as if we had done them. And so when our God looks at our lives, he sees the righteousness of Christ and calls us good. That makes the gospel radically inclusive. Because no matter who you are or what you've done, when you turn to Jesus Christ, you are united to Jesus Christ granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ and counted right with God because of Jesus Christ. And so I say again, the door is open to any who will come, the lowest and the least, who retreated the highest and best. Before we wrap up, let's just marvel for a moment at the gospel math of verse 30. Some are last who will be first. Some are first who will be last. In Jesus' day, those who were considered first and best were, well, they turned out to be the Lord's fiercest opponents. The last. And some who were considered the least in Jesus' day became his most loyal followers. Women, fishermen, 
tax collectors? So in correcting this person's question about whether or not the number will be few, Jesus is telling us that the people who appear closest to God may turn out to be furthest from Him. And so, Pickle Baptist Church, let us endeavor to derive our metrics from, of spiritual health from the pages of Holy Scripture and nowhere else. Because often what is first to us is not first to God. And let us remember that a primary marker of spiritual maturity is love. And last time I checked, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. That we measure maturity by Christ-likeness, by faith, by virtue, by knowledge, by self-control, by steadfastness, by godliness, by love for others. By joy, by peace, by gentleness, by kindness, by goodness. Things like this. But here's the point. That all who will enter this door do so by grace. And that only those who have made a mess of their life may enter here. Weakness, messiness, does not repel the Savior. Draws him near. It's why he came. The poor and the sick and those burdened by sin may come. And when you leave these doors, you'll be measured differently. Because out there, only the strong survive. But in here, only the weak survive. So come one. Come all. The door is open. Take hold of the Savior and let him carry us through the door. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for his righteousness, for his death and for his resurrection. We thank you for him securing our place in your kingdom. We confess, Father, that we have strived after many things, that we have held tightly to things in this world and not to your Son. We try to keep one hand on him and one hand on something else. Please forgive us. We admit, Lord, that in many ways with our lives we've said we've done one thing and with our mouths we've done another. Please restore us again. Renew our love for Jesus and our satisfaction in him. Renew our commitment to making Christ all in all. And send us from this place filled with the joy of your spirit to tell everyone the door is open any and all who will come. In Jesus' name we pray. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. At the end of our services, we go before the Lord and we ask him for an assurance of pardon. The Bible gives us lots of these. So those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have this assurance from Holy Scripture about how God thinks about your sin. Psalm chapter 6, verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast.